0: You, 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 you know the the you, you know the the
1: Hello and welcome to episode 399 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Paliachi Pizza. I'm your co-host Kevin Pelton. And
2: I'm Tristan Carcino.
1: And we are coming to you in different locations tonight because of the freezing rain. Hello. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home to the four-time <laughs> WNBA champion storm.
2: And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl Forty Eight champion Seattle Seahawks.
1: And very soon, home of the two-time MLS Cup winning Seattle Sounders FC. But we'll get to that a really? little bit later in the Renton, pod. Washington? We've talked about it. But wow! It's, it's officially happening very soon. Oh, uh,
2: man. Renton, Washington, not too bold for the Seahawks and the Sounders. Cafe Vita, Pagliacci, <laughs> don't mean to call you out, but...
1: Dicks woodies,
2: Dicks. Not too bold for them, but we are coming to you for the 9-9 and
1: the 2,000. Some of the highlights of our Let's Remember Some Years series back in the day. But uh it's very weird to be doing a podcast and not start it with a special episode. <laughs> lately there have been more special episodes than regular a regular like, episode. We're like the Pelton cast. <laughs> we have conducted four emergency podcasts in the last eight days, three of them between this last most recent weekly pod and this <laughs> pod. When we talked about, uh, I don't know, I guess we didn't even really talk about that. We talked about UW football's future and we talked about Pete Carroll and little <laughs> did we know that, that all of those things were going to be wildly different by the time so we be. We didn't, we didn't m-
2: know a week ago when we recorded the last weekly podcast about we didn't Nick, Saban know that Nick Saban before was Pete Carroll? Nope. Oh my God! <laughs> like it was, we were so naive a week ago.
1: <laughs> a lot has changed. So much has changed. Man, the Huskies we had, had a head world weary. The Huskies had a head coach, Kevin DeBoer, <laughs> but they didn't have a head coach, and then they had a new head coach, Jed Fish. All within the span of the week since we last wow. recorded, the Seahawks still do not have a head coach. It's Huskies been a long year. This last week. Exactly. So obviously still a lot to get up to get to. Uh, if you haven't listened to the most uh, current emergency pods, the uh, you know, the original <laughs> Kalen DeBoer one, I think is still worth a listen for the discussion, kind of the big picture discussion. Which the importance. podcasts
2: are not worth a listen.
1: <laughs> well, I think last week's Just... weekly pod, the part about Pete Carroll continuing to coach the Seahawks. It's worth a listen for amusement. It's not as educational anymore. See,
2: I don't, I don't know if I agree with that because there was the whole rant ending with Pete Carroll retire, bitch. And fair, just turn it I, off
1: at the Pete Carroll retire, bitch, and move yeah, ahead.
2: at that point, be like, wow, how fortuitous this was. <laughs> I put on my Nostra Tristan hat. Which is why I said Pete Carroll retire, bitch. And then I didn't say any of the things about Pete Carroll is definitely coming back. The team is in Pete Carroll's image. He runs the franchise. L- ignore all that stuff.
1: Do listen to the part where I said Pete Carroll said he plans on coming back. <laughs> yeah. That's not the same. <laughs> also, wait. Did you see the Pelton quotes tweet about
2: Jed Fish? I I saying did, that was a year it ago. Literally, I do not remember the, the <laughs> name Jed Fish coming out of my mouth before like a month ago
1: so this and... was episode 341 this would be 58 weeks ago so probably end of november 2022 uh is quoted on the discord well it's quoted on 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 pelton quotes X formerly twitter at pelton quotes uh but brought back up by pelton quotes on the discord tristan i want there to be an alternative world where i'm a college football coach <laughs> kevin <laughs> giggles tristan <laughs> Like, seeing the jedfish extension, and I was like, Arizona reached the level of incompetent. And then they're like, we've got to extend Jedfish. And then it turned <laughs> out their extension for jedfish wasn't enough to keep it. I know.
2: I mean, <laughs> isn't that hilarious? But no, I still, I agree with Tristan a year ago. The only thing, well, sort of. But, like, I don't think almost anybody, they were still picked eighth in the Pac-12 to start the season. It's not like Arizona was. And so you see that and you're like, wow, look at this idiot complaining about (laughs) Jed Fish as if that had just happened. The point remains still. The point is, I want an alternate world where I'm a college football coach. And I feel that even stronger than I did a year ago because the money going around for college football coaches is incredible.
1: Well, I think that's including Jed Fish. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about the Huskies obviously later in the podcast. I do think it's an interesting big picture point. Like you look even the difference between Kaylin DeBoer's contract when he was hired 14 months ago yeah. and Jed Fish's contract. And like Jed Fish is a better candidate than Kawan DeBoer. It was, he's already in a major conference. He had a better contract than Kaylin DeBoer did as a first time head coach at Fresno State. But it's still like night and day on their contracts. And then if you go back to Jimmy Lake's contract, like the idea that, oh my God, the United mm-hmm. Athletic Department is struggling under the crushing weight. Jimmy Lake's contract was like $15.6 Oh, yeah. No, Jim no, is not- making more than three times as much as Jimmy Lake was making. Uh, obviously, a longer contract, but uh, more than double per season. It is like... The arms race in college football has escalated so quickly, and look, there's got to be a logical conclusion to it at some point, especially when you can pay the players directly, and that's going to be competing more with for funding, with what you're paying the coaches. But it's it's not great for uh, major major college, you know, for academics. That uh, this is where all the money is going to so like academics the, are just gone. The coaches. Like, I, honestly, we're all, I was. The coaches were always the highest paid state employees, but now it's like they're they're higher paid than private employees.
2: No, it's kind of wild. Like I feel like these contracts are comparable to NFL contracts right now, right? Yeah. It, it's kind of incredible just how quickly that's gone up. That Jedfish, like, I feel like there was a time where you would make way more money in the NFL than you could in college. And now that is certainly not the case. Like I would assume that the money that Jed Fish is making is probably pretty commensurate or better than some of the first-time coaches that we're going to see in the NFL.
1: It was amusing that Troy Dannon specifically brought up during the press conference to introduce Jed Fish on Tuesday that he hoped not to lose uh, Jed Fish to any other college job, but was okay if he went to go coach the Seahawks. <laughs> what, next week? <laughs> not next week, down the road. <laughs> Troy Dannon
2: has learned pandering to the city of Seattle very quickly. It's just like my long-term history since a month ago when I started caring about the Seahawks. The The concept, I was thinking about this, and I feel like colleges in general, there's the thing about grade inflation at colleges. I feel like we've given up on the idea of higher learning and have turned colleges, basically, it, like capitalism has happened to universities. Yeah, universities are factories that deliver you degrees, and the degrees are based upon our are ranked or whatever, but like your grades don't matter. The learning doesn't matter. You are paying a college a certain amount of money to receive a degree from that college. It is an investment because then the value of the college, as they get this, the value of the college and their rankings and the better grades that you get or whatever, the more people that they churn out then you go get jobs, and then you donate more money back to the college. So it incentivizes colleges to just churn out as many successful people as possible to go get good jobs to give the money back to colleges. But, like, they're degree factories, ultimately.
1: But also successful in a specific type of way, because, you know... Certainly, you can be successful leading a nonprofit. You can be very successful in you know, the, the government sector. Those probably, and that probably has its benefits to the college as well, certainly if you're in the government sector and controlling the funding to them. But those don't create uh, the same degree of giving as encouraging everyone to go work in tech and, and be venture, in venture cap
2: and then you use sports teams as basically your marketing. Like Ivy Leagues don't need sports teams in the marketing. They have the Ivy League as their marketing. But like the sports teams ultimately are just, they've instead of like they are paying money, 7.7 7 million or whatever to Jed Fish as football coach. But what they are paying Jed Fish $7.7 7 million to is to market the University of Washington and to sell merchandise for the University of Washington. That is ultimately what Jed Fish is being paid for.
1: And let's hope that he can celebrate their academically prowess.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> all right, we've got gonna watch it get to it. let's get into it starting with it's the return of our search for seattle's best ipa i have finally Hello. gone to the effort of getting an ipa that uh was not previously in our search and that's from our friends at old stove brewing the west coast ipa we used our favorite hops for this classic style west coast ipa warrior chinook and mosaic and simcoe on the boil then dry hopping with a huge dose of cryo simcoe citra and mosaic
2: cryo Simcoe
1: uh, yeah, yeah, no. uh so that's certainly a lot of different ops they listed up <laughs> yeah old stove has like expanded dramatically I just so I recently learned that they have a place in Ballard because there was a there's a billboard for it when we were driving to Ballard but then I learned on their website today that apparently they have a location in Interbay as well near the SPU campus Really, so that was quite fascinating to learn so uh, I a
2: new stoves I mean the original location is in the market right? Correct. It's like kind of maybe the best location view wise of any brewery in Seattle. You drive by it, especially if days, remember those, Um, but you would drive by it and you'd look over and be like, I want to be there. Whatever I'm doing right now, I would rather be doing that than almost anything in the world. When you see Old Stove, especially on a sunny day in Seattle.
1: Yes, 100% agree. Strong agree. Uh, and yet the only time recently, the most recent time I've been outdoors was in like early or mid-September. It was, no, you, haven't, you haven't
2: been outdoors since mid-September? <laughs> at Old it's Stove. It's been cold, but not for that long.
1: I've been at Old Stove, but only <laughs> in the interior portion, not in the patio because those location those spots are so coveted.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, so we'll revisit this one. I have a chance to drink it a little more, but let's get to our toasts. Starting with a congratulations to Bobby Wagner, who was voted AP All-Pro second team at linebacker, tenth career All-Pro appearance, just another accolade in the Hall of Fame resume for Bobby Wagner in his return to Seattle this season. Also this week, speaking of Ballard, we have a congrats to inaugural Sounder James Riley, who was named head coach of Ballard FC. Wow, the reigning USL League Two champions won that title. Uh, under interim coach Ethan O'Neill, who stepped down in November, so an opening there, and James Riley stepped into uh, fill it up the bridges.
2: There we go. James Riley, voted by me, the most likely professional athlete to just see around. <laughs> you think so? Absolutely. I think I saw saw him around like three or four times, <laughs> and he also he looks he's the one who looks like John Legend, right? Correct. Yeah. So That's you the, see him. The thing and I always like,
1: associate with James Riley.
2: You, you see him and you're like, oh, that's James Riley. You're like, wait, is that? No, okay. Yeah, that's James Riley. You cycle through the people. You start at John, you're like, oh my, oh, okay, yeah. You're like, I don't
1: see Chrissy Teigen. So it must not be John Legend. It must <laughs> I, be James Riley. I don't know but...
2: who else would be the, I feel like Sounders players in general. I don't know about, see, I don't know if I'd recognize a Kraken player necessarily, but like I don't Sounders think players are probably the hot, top, highest tier of just some guys that you'd see.
1: Well, they don't have as many games. Also, they're in Renton now. So, you know, they're very near you. They're very accessible to you. Uh, but it's like the ex-Sounders who are just like really part of the community. I feel like you could-I'm not I'm not Brad, saying
2: part of the community. I mean like you you go to Lowe's. I know. And there's James Riley.
1: I feel like Brad Evans could be out there somewhere. Brad like Evans you, could be high you're, out there. You're at the old stove brewing in the market. Brad Evans is over there.
2: Yeah, that no, I wouldn't be surprised out. by that at all. I'm trying to think of other players. There was the I one think... time I saw each row on the street. See, the thing is, a lot of players you just don't even necessarily know.
1: I'm pretty sure Roger Levesque and some of the other early Sounders FC era Sounders players shared a house on the top of Queen Anne Hill that was along my commute to the storm offices when I was working Mm -hmm. there. So I would see them all the time. Roger Levesque's like
2: a very notable looking person, too.
1: Yes, he's easy to recognize. If anyone can confirm... That Roger Levesque indeed lived on the top of Sweden and hill at that point. I would be amused to know.
2: Yeah, I think that's it. I could see Will Disley being around.
1: Will checks out. That makes sense.
2: As long as Will Disley could be a Seattle athlete, though.
0: Pretty big, pretty big uh,
1: cap hit for next season. All right, but that's not what we're what we're discussing. Let's get I into just, the. round. You had up. to go
2: there. I'm just trying to celebrate a, a husky and a seahawk, and you have to talk about his cap hit. Also, Kate Otten making plays
1: out there. So many plays. He was getting thrown to constantly. Actually, we're not getting into the round I had because...
2: to. I had to secretly cheer for him because Mateo was so aggressively cheering for the <laughs> Eagles. In my head, I had to be like.
1: How did he <laughs> handle his first playoff loss as an Eagles fan? I had prepped him because I had a gut
2: feeling after watching the Eagles for the last five weeks.
1: <laughs> you um, saw them play Tyrod Taylor and you're like,
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So in the morning, I was like, let I was like, one of the fun things about the playoffs is that you, if you win, it's really exciting. But if you lose, the season does end. So there's really big stakes to every game. So every time that I play a game where the team could be won and done, I prep myself beforehand that the team might lose and don't go around hitting my parents. <laughs> and so I had already prepped him and he freaked out at the beginning, very aggressive cheering. And there was a moment where it was just like, this ain't happening for the Eagles. (laughs) They were down
1: 13, nothing. I think we, even
2: after the touchdown, like it got a little close and I think it was the very beginning of the second half. And he was like, turn this off. And I was like, you know what? I'm good with that. (laughs) Like you don't have to see the end of this Eagles season, Mateo. So, uh, I have you feel like, has he heard the
1: news about Jason Kelsey potentially retiring though?
2: Oh no. Oh, he's going to be devastated.
1: You didn't, did you not know this? No. Yeah. That's a thing.
2: Uh, his Eagles fandom basically exactly aligned with when they got bad.
1: It is, it is truly uncanny.
2: The game against the chiefs was like the first game that I remember him being a big fan, which they should have lost and somehow won. And pretty much from that point forward, the Eagles were tr- not, they weren't truly awful all of those games, but they were pretty close to it. And it, I just, again, I think we had a strong feeling going into that one about what was going to happen. And they were finally put out of their misery.
1: Yeah. Not great. Really Sean Decide. Back
2: to that big Seahawks win.
1: <laughs> it really does. Yes, I agree. Sean Decide did nothing wrong.
2: They weren't football people who fired Pete Carroll.
1: Oh, we're going to discuss <laughs> that. But right now, we have the return of another segment. It's time for our Hello. Seattle food update. Because earlier this evening, for the first time ever, I dined at Il Nido. On Kai, a place that previously we had repeatedly gotten during the early part of the pandemic, mm-hmm. they operated as kind of a food pantry and offered sauces and dry pasta and focaccia to go. Oh, the and focaccia was
2: so good!
1: It's it's when you started making our the northern uh, the Genoese version of that fagasa cooking that in the house all the time, which was a great time.
2: I haven't cooked that in a long time. You think it's Genoese, not Genovese?
1: It is, it is Genovese, yes. Genovese right. is also a term, but that's the, the more preferred. It was like culture. when you
2: pronounce Bobby Bobby Slovic, Bobby Slovic. And I was like, you know what, Kevin, I think he's got it. I've read the name. I was like, Do you, he must be German. I'm I, accepting it.
1: I just guessed on that one because we were doing it in the moment. I have subsequently researched it is, it is in fact, Bobby Slovic.
2: It's almost never, names are almost never as like ethnically <laughs> pronounced as you and I want them to be. Uh, honestly, we're just doing the extra work. That's like the extra two percent right there. Just mispronouncing somebody's name. He'll always be Frank Kepnong to I, me.
1: I gotta believe his name is actually Frank Kepnong. That he's just <laughs> dumbing it down for the Americans Oh yeah, See, here. that's the
2: thing. That's the thing. You and I, as graduates from the <laughs> institution University of Washington. Those that degree very factory. Good, very good degrees. <laughs> A little headier than everybody else pronouncing. <laughs> Frank Kepnong's name.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. anyways, <laughs> we went to Il Nido a lot during that period of time. Then they went back to in-person dining and uh, stopped to offering takeout, which was a tremendous disappointment to us. And not for lack of interest, I just never made it back. There was like a reservation that I had last summer that conflicted with something else. So I was unable to go. But tonight finally made the reservation, went and let me tell you, it was fucking phenomenal. Oh, wow. I would say this was this was probably better. I, I went to Canlis last fall. This was probably better than that and, as a meal.
2: Are reservations hard to get there? No, they're not hard. You
1: just have to make it a, a, a little bit out. I mean, it's not like Moto Pizza level far out, but it is a little bit far out. Just every... Every meal dish we had was so well balanced in terms of like the flavors and the, you know, the acidity and things like that. It's the stuff that they talk about on The Bear when they're constructing dishes or on Top Chef. Like they hundred percent nailed it at El Nido. Okay, how and much
2: is El Nido? What's the price point on it?
1: It's it's expensive, but it's not like super expensive. I mean, we went, we ate a lot of food for two people just to kind of try out the menu a little bit and then also not knowing exactly what the serving sizes were going to be like, in, it ended up being about $100 per person.
2: Per person, okay.
1: Yeah. So it's certainly high-end, but it's not like the five-star you know, I five guess th- star there level.
2: aren't any like weekend reservations. Weekdays, you can get reservations pretty much anytime.
1: But yeah, I think it's also a little bit more difficult. More popular during the summer, obviously, as all of Alki is. And one of the things we discovered is, so it's located in a what was you know originally a home one of the first like homes on Elkai built in 1904 it is not well insulated as it turns out so it's pretty oh. chilly in there on a uh, a 30 mid 30s evening like this but uh probably a bit nicer I would say uh during the spring and fall
2: what uh what did you get there
1: uh so we had the chicory salad we had the burrata and the focaccia uh is an opening course and then we just did a pasta course and did, they had a ravioli filled with sausage that uh, I, I saw on Instagram that they advertised as kind of a New Year's tradition that's eaten oh, yeah. for good luck at New Year's, uh, similar to like rice cakes and the the Lunar New Year tradition. And then uh, had Talia Telly with the ragu, which was outstanding. Okay. And then uh, the last dish was like their version of Pachio a e Pepe, which was a, probably the least spectacular of the dishes that we had, I would say.
2: It's like a pretty basic dish. Yeah. Saratoga cut ribeye. Damn, that looks so good.
1: So you seem to be the under the impression, and I think Jan was as well when I talked to her about this, that when they stopped doing takeout, that they ceased operations entirely.
2: Well, you said that they closed or they uh, changed ownership, right?
1: Yeah. So Mike Easton, who started Il Corvo, which did close operations in Pioneer Square, as well as Il Nido, uh, he moved away from Seattle and not now it's 2022. So it's not last year anymore. Uh, sold it. And Il Nido <laughs> is now owned. this I'm explaining time. Podcast time. <laughs> it's not 20,
2: 2022, though.
1: That's <laughs> No, I'm saying last year. 2022 is no longer last year. Okay. It still feels like last year. Uh the new owners are longtime manager Cameron Williams and executive chef Katie Gallego, according to the story of my friend of the pod, third Pelton brother Alicia Vermillion.
2: All right. I gotta go there right now.
1: I'm starving. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're still open,
2: sadly. The double cut bone and ribeye for $162. Forty-two ounces when available. <laughs> That looks so good. Oh, my God.
1: I'm wondering if that's... Is that like a for-the-table situation?
2: 42 ounces of ribeye?
1: Yeah. If
2: you have a weak disposition, disposition, <laughs> maybe it is.
1: But you're not going to want to... Not going to want to... Maybe uh... for you it's for the <laughs> table. Okay. look forward to you. I've seen the 42 I eating the 42-ounce ribeye and doing fast and gosh. $227. <laughs> All right, anyways, this has been the Pelton Cast discovers Il Nito is good.
2: I think we already knew Il Nido was good.
1: We did. We discovered it was still open. You discovered it was still open. Uh let's get into the roundup. Starting with the Mariners who reached agreements with all seven arbitration eligible players before Thursday's deadline. Uh projected starting infielders, Ty France, Josh Rojas, and Luis Urias were all among that group uh starting pitcher logan gilbert who's a super two eligible relievers trent thornton and justin topa and of course pelton cast favorite sam and alfrio Hagerty.
2: this all happened like pre everything with the huskies and pete carroll so it's sort of just like this news is faded to the sands of time
1: you know what this is sort of like so i don't know if you caught any of the emmys on Monday night which were were airing opposites at buccaneers eagles game uh Although I, I watched them after recorded, uh, the, so this was the Emmys that should have run in September because of the actor's strike and the writer's strike Mm -hmm. and the eligibility for the Emmys runs on the network TV calendar. So like the end of it, it was June, 2022 was the starting period. Mm -hmm. So speaking of my 2022 feels like last year, the bear season one. Oh, was it was the Bear the season
2: one that was winning. Yeah.
1: Long after the Bear
2: season two has come out. That's this really is. strange.
1: That's what this week's podcast feels like. Well, speaking of things that happened in between those periods of time, the Kraken ran their winning streak to nine games, the longest in franchise history with road wins at Washington and Columbus before finally seeing both that streak in a 13-game point streak end mm-hmm. on MLK Day at Pittsburgh with a 3-0 loss. They then lost 5-2 on the back end of a back-to-back Tuesday night at the New York Rangers. Uh, Kraken tied for ninth in the West, two points out of a final playoff spot. We're a little bit past the midway point, but figured now with this losing winning streak coming to an end would be a good time to kind of check in big picture on where the Kraken are. Their shooting percentage entering Tuesday was up to 21st in the NHL after lagging in the bottom five for much of the season. They're still slightly underperforming their shot statistics that paint them as an average team or better, but the winning streak was really more about their hot goaltending. They allowed just 1.4 goals per game during those nine games, less than half of their 3.3 average beforehand. Uh, For comparison, Winnipeg leads the NHL by allowing 2.3 goals per game. It was almost all Joey Decord who started eight of the nine games in goal before getting a rest on Tuesday night uh, with the busy schedule. The road-wearing Kraken wrap up this trip Thursday in Edmonton. They'll start a four-game homestand Sunday against the Maple Leafs. Uh, They will do so without Matty Beneers, who was placed on IR with an upper body injury. They also played that back-to-back without Andrei Berakovsky and Vince Dunn, who are day-to-day.
2: Okay, so so the Sounders are in a solid place overall, especially where they started the season. Not necessarily a guarantee that they make the playoffs, but obviously the long winning streak is helpful uh, in getting toward that goal. And They're in the assume, mix. You would assume for the rest of the season that they'll be hovering around a playoff spot.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that'll be interesting is how they approach the playoff, uh, the, uh, trade deadline. Now, you know, the nice thing about the NHL vis-a-vis the NBA in particular is like the trade deadline is so much later that you kind of get a lot of information about where your team is. Uh, I don't know that they really have a lot of, you know, expiring contracts that they would be looking to trade away, even if they decided that the playoffs were, you know, not, or, or at least an extended playoff run, like last season was a long shot, but, uh, I, I don't know if there'll be buyers at this point necessarily either. So, But again, they've got a few weeks to decide that.
2: Okay. I, I mean, they, they kind of overperformed last season. This is maybe a little bit more on the timeline with where the Kraken should have been. Uh, I, I just don't want to approach this as like a disappointing season so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is about where the statistical projections had them on the fringes of the playoffs. So it's not terribly surprising from that standpoint. They've just gotten there in a very unusual way with the longest or I think tied the longest losing streak in franchise history. Obviously, there's not a lot of seasons, but did that and then had the <laughs> longest winning streak in franchise history.
2: It's kind of easy right now.
1: <laughs> True. But compared to the expansion season, it's not necessarily that easy for the longest losing streak. It's the winning streak that's easier to do. Uh, the NHL trade deadline is March 8th. So yeah, still almost two months to go until that one. That's like a full month after the NBA trend deadline. It is like four weeks to the day after. Uh, Seattle Sounders back in action. Uh, They opened 2024 training camp on Tuesday. They will spend a week here at Starfire before traveling to Marbella, Spain for two weeks of training and preseason friendlies. They will be back in Seattle February 13th ahead of the start of their MLS schedule and will then move training to their new headquarters in Breton.
2: Would that we all could travel to Marbella, Spain for the next two weeks.
1: <laughs> You'd like to do that before coming back to Redden? I actually
2: would would not mind if you could just fast forward, go to Spain for a couple of weeks. I pulled up the weather in Marbella, Spain. Oh, that's that's the kind of
1: like... research we need here on the Pelton Cast.
2: Well, you know about the rains in Spain, right? Currently raining right now in Spain.
1: But is Marbella on the plane?
2: Though? I t- I would have to assume so based upon it being raining right now. But by next week, next Monday, 62 degrees and sunny through Friday. Literally not a cloud in sight. All wow. week in Marbella up to 68 next Friday. Just take me with you. I'm already in Rent <laughs> Sounders. <laughs>
1: I like that that would make it easier to take
2: <laughs> <laughs> They could just drop me back at home on the way back from <laughs> Spain. They don't have to go super far out of their way or anything. I this is the know. other alternate world. The, the previous alternate world, I'm a college football coach. <laughs> now you're... That one is for the pay. This one is for the trip to Spain.
1: What are you doing for the Sounders while you're on this trip?
2: You know, I, I think providing Ball good boy? vibes. <laughs> I, hot takes are needed. I am <laughs> so there. If there's any music management uh, uh, needs <laughs> that they have along the way. Honestly, I had those so covered. Anybody needs me to explain sound exchange to them, I can definitely do that.
1: Uh, Marbella is part of Andalusia. I didn't know that. Okay. And, Andalusia. It's not, and not, not far from the rock of Gibraltar.
2: Slicey up eyeballs. Um.
1: Well, where is that? What that's part just, of Spain? Is it the in southern, the plains? It's the southern coast. It is it would not be described as the plains. It's a beach town. Wow. So is that a limerick? <laughs> <Just a>, uh <laughs> i don't ever lie I don't think it's a little <laughs> nope. bit it just says mostly it doesn't say they exclusively okay. i do like that they leave it open <laughs> Podcast is already going you... in many unexpected directions
2: <laughs> there's the fluid max song thunder only happens when it's raining right i remember do you remember you and i talked about this like 20 years ago where it's like, there are definitely <laughs> really? times when thunder happens when it's not raining.
1: It is true. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> isn't there even a term, dry lightning? Isn't that yeah. a thing?
2: Yeah. So I think Fleetwood Mac, <clears throat> just a note, <laughs> uh, thunder mostly <laughs> happens when it's raining. If we could take a little something from the limerick about Spain. Wow.
1: Oh. Really owned Fleetwood Mac with that one.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just factually incorrect.
1: Uh, A little more sound news. They extended midfielder Josh Atencio through 2027. The 21-year-old emerged as a starter at defensive midfield late last season, starting seven of the eight final regular season matches, as well as their playoff loss to LAFC. So good news to get a uh, promising young player signed up for multiple more seasons. Seattle Rain FC doing much the same with forward Bethany Balser. They extended her contract through 2025, which had previously been a mutual option. Uh Rains still a little bit further away from beginning their preseason training. But we'll see we'll see when we get there whether Laura Harvey is coaching the team. The Times of London reported that the Rains coach, a native of England, is one of the leading contenders to replace new U.S. New US women's national team manager Emma Hayes as head coach of Chelsea Football Club. Harvey signed a contract extension in July that takes her deal with the rain through 2025. Plenty of other candidates there, so I don't think this is a huge concern, but uh, uh, a possible opportunity there for Laura Harvey, and perhaps that would also start a chain reaction that would end with Alabama State losing their coach. <laughs>
2: South Alabama, thank you. South Alabama, the joke. <laughs> Disrespect to the Jaguars. Oh dear! Wow. This is a joke. If only Mateo heard you uh You know he's yeah, in on the on the nickname thing now. By the way, we do a thing in the car where it's just like Luca will name a conference and Mateo has to try to name. This is just out of control. There's two of them. In fact, there's
1: if you count three. you, there's <laughs> yeah, three of them. There's three of us. Well, I I, I confuse South Alabama and Alabama State, so maybe yeah, I don't. Qualify anymore. You're washed up.
2: <laughs> Luca will go through and name a conference, and Mateo has to try to guess every single team in that conference.
1: And he has to guess, like, the current conference, not, like, the classic future, conference? Future tense, yes. Oh, but... I mean, it's
2: not that hard to keep track of.
1: I very recently learned that Liberty is in Conference USA today. There's now, <laughs> like, it's like, oh, okay, that's that's a thing that happened. We're not going
2: that deep with the seven-year-old, but,
1: like, okay,
2: you know, he sticks to the bigger conferences. He doesn't get into the AAC and the CUSA.
1: I, I've been playing around a lot on the 247sports.com transfer tracker for uh, obvious reasons. And UW, because it's 2024, <laughs> is already listed in the Big Ten there. Oh,
2: there we go. The transfer tracker has no good news for you. I'm so sad. So sorry to say. Oh, it
1: had one, maybe two pieces of good news. Did really? It? Yeah. We'll
2: okay. get to it. Okay. We'll the transfer, to... the transfer tracker is just like fuck you. <laughs>
1: the you don't want,
2: You have no business here, sir. Personally targeting me. <laughs> the, tra- the transfer tracker is like there's an X in the corner for a reason.
0: <laughs> All right, lastly. What, what you
2: want? What you want is is you want the Wayback Machine when you click on the two four seven Sports Transfer Tracker. I think died. about what
1: was. I did because we were curious whether. Kaelin DeBoer had brought any players with him from Fresno State. Look at the 2022 transfers. That was some GTs. There you go. Shouts to Wayne Talapapa. All right. Lastly, (sighs) on our summer sports part of the rundown, uh, Sunday is the opening day of WNBA free agency. Uh, The Storm took care of their biggest impending free agent by extending Jewel Lloyd last summer. That leaves Gabby Williams, who's unlikely to play in the WNBA in 2024 due to the combination of the prioritization role and playing for the host country in the Paris Olympics as the Storm's only unrestricted free agent. The Storm announced Tuesday they've extended a qualifying offer to reserve forward Joyner Holmes, making her a restricted free agent while not yet doing so for veteran guard Yvonne Turner. Without a qualifying offer, Turner would also become unrestricted as a free agent. So we did the uh, WNBA mock-off-season exercise. Hello. A few weeks ago, at Speak,
2: speaking of things that I had no good news for you.
1: No, this year oh, they had...
2: Oh, hello.
1: I mean, they didn't necessarily have great news. Beda Stewart didn't come back, but... Uh, <laughs> I tried. What was her buyout? <laughs> Instead of buyout,
2: yeah, Coached the much. Seahawks? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh,
2: in, in your mock-off-season... But guess what who I did
1: bring like? to Seattle... Courtney Vandersloot traded a first-round pick to the New York Liberty to bring Sloot back to Seattle.
2: Why would the the Liberty make that trade?
1: They wanted to get better defensively in the backcourt, so they signed Natasha Cloud from Washington as a free agent and needed to trade Vandersloot to have both playing time and salary cap space for her.
2: Okay, let's take a step back into the real world. And this isn't your situation where, God, where was the one where LeBron James signed with Houston on, on that <laughs> mock-off season? It was like literally LeBron James had been signed to LA in everybody's heads for months and it was like, Houston? But in, in the real world, is there, a, is there a possibility of that happening, that the Liberty would want to move on from Courtney Vandersloot?
1: I think it's a long shot, but their guard defense was a pretty significant liability in the playoffs with Vandersloot and, and Sabrina UNESCO in the backcourt. So sort I of think it's inconceivable. I mean, the Storm wouldn't be the only team that would want Van der Sloot in that scenario where she became available. One of the interesting takeaways of that exercise, uh one of my bold predictions of this uh, last year uh which we'll see if the this was also insufficiently bold was that the Storm were going to sign Skylar Diggins-Smith uh-huh. uh to be that veteran point guard that they are probably looking for. But one of the takeaways from this exercise is like a lot of teams were very in on Skylar Diggins-Smith. And, uh, you know, we'll see if the actual market for her is, is robust. But a lot of teams need point guards, and that's going to be an interesting situation for the Storm. Uh, some of the other options out there, uh, you have Jordan Canada, who started her career in Seattle. Didn't, didn't seem thrilled with how it ended on either side uh, in Seattle, but she really dramatically improved Was runner up for most improved player last year really and uh added an outside shot so she actually fits much better with the I really like now. canada yeah so I, I think that's a long shot but uh she she is out there in free agency and then you've got courtney williams who developed into a point guard last year in chicago as a possibility so i i would expect them to go after a veteran point guard my other target I in this mock off season traded Kia Nurse to the LA Sparks, uh, so that we were able to offer two players protected contracts, and had uh, a little more cap space, and then use that cap space to go out and sign Australian forward Alana Smith, who had a breakout season with the Chicago Sky last year. Uh, so the idea being there to move Ezi M- Meg Begore to center and have Alana Smith start next to her in an all Aussie front court.
2: All right. Uh... So the pick that you you said you traded for Courtney Vandersloot in the mock offseason, was that the current, the fourth pick? No, No, it was a different pick.
1: I traded the 2024 pick. Or the 2025 pick, I should say.
2: Why would you do that?
1: Under the logic that... Was it protected? No, you can't protect picks in the WNBA, which is not great. But under the logic... You're the worst GM of all time! Under the logic that Caitlin Clark will go back, it will come out, I should say, this year... That most of these players will ultimately come out, and then, uh, the if you added Cordy VanderSluut and another free agent, the storm would be good enough that you're not you're in the low end playoff mix. You're not giving up a lottery pick.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just we'll just throw in DJ Moore.
1: Are you kidding me? I don't think me? the Panthers threw in DJ Moore. It was a risk. I I agree.
2: I don't like that risk at all.
1: Also, it was a mock-up how, season. I don't, how I good don't, is
2: Courtney uh, I don't have to
1: deal with the reality
2: of it. <laughs> you have to deal with the reality of it right here, sir. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm on the hot
1: seat. Uh, but, uh, Jody Allen's going to fire me.
2: <laughs> who? Let's assume that Caitlin Clark and, and the entire class, right? Let's assume the entire class comes out this year. Who's, like who's left next year?
1: Who's the best 2025 prospect? I'd have to look at it. I'm, I'm sure there's someone I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but like if you look at the best players in college basketball right now, it's all the players who have eligibility, who have the chance to come out this year. And then Juju Watkins. So there's a freshman right now at USC and is Who maybe can't. the most exciting they, player. Juju
2: Watkins can't come out after next yeah, year. Yeah, for at least two years, I haven't
1: researched whether she's she would have junior eligibility, but you know, she's long down the road.
2: This would be the season. God, the Storm fucked this up so bad. This would be the season that the Storm have a very good chance if they don't go all in on the 2024 season, that they would have a very good chance of having the first or second pick.
1: Yes, because now they would be starting with a bad record rather than starting with a good record. And it's interesting because the, one of the other teams that had a record in this ballpark last year, I think worse than them, was Phoenix. Phoenix does not have their 2025 draft pick outright because they swapped it to, of all teams, New York. Oh, my God. The Liberty, really. They're They're pretty good at this.
2: Well, I'm going to say all that sounds quite bad for the Storm.
1: I mean, I yeah, again, it's a mock-off season. We'll see how things actually play if, out. Even, I do think they're going to try to win.
2: Season, the, the situation that they have themselves set up in is their chances of getting... And you never know, right? Maybe the player that they get with the fourth pick will end up developing into a star. But if, I do
1: think... I mean, if everyone comes out, again, they'll get someone really quite good with the fourth pick.
2: Okay. I guess that just pretty much has to be the hope.
1: Yeah. But one of the oddities of of WNBA free agencies we've talked about in the past is all of this plays out before you know who's going to enter the draft. So you know what pick you're going to have, but you kind of have to plan as if you don't know which player that might be, which is how I approach things. Why don't they
2: not do that?
1: Well, just realistically, they can't. The call it women's college season ends like two weeks before you start training camp. You couldn't and have so they free basically agency in those two weeks. And then they're
2: instantly with the team.
1: Correct. Okay. I guess you could force players to declare for the draft in, in like December. I think they're in the business of forcing players not to declare for the draft. All right, well, speaking of women's college basketball... A rough one Sunday for the UW women. After opening conference play in December with a win in Pullman, Huskies have now lost all three conference games in January. Split the Apple Cup series with each team winning on the other's home court. As Washington State got the 72-59 win Sunday in Hecked, UW was outscored 61-41 after taking a lead after the first quarter. Galia Daniels had 23 points on nine of 12 shooting, eight rebounds, but El Ladine with 14 was the only other Husky in double figures, as WSU had six players score at least eight points. They'll try to bounce back at home again this weekend against the Arizona schools. Our old friend Adia Barnes's Wildcats are two and three in conference play with a pretty young lineup. Since blowing out Arizona State in December, their four Pac 12 games have been decided by a combined, a combined seven points. They lost three of those by one at number five, Colorado in double OT at Oregon State and by two at Oregon, but did upset number 15, Utah at home also in overtime. So if we know anything about this game, it will likely come down to the wire and be very exciting on Friday night. On Sunday, it's Arizona State, who's still building under second-year coach Natasha Adair. Their eight wins are as many as all of last season, but they're 0-5 in Pac-12 play. And the closest of those losses was by 12 points. So this one's a must-win for the Huskies. Okay. Well, speaking of must-wins, you have men's basketball, Got one of those on Thursdays. They beat Arizona State 82 67, but very much did not. Sunday at UCLA, losing 73 61, their worst loss of the season by far, to a team ranked number 118, in Kempom, entering the game after having lost 90 44 <laughs> at Utah <laughs> on Thursday. Uh, did you watch this game?
2: Uh, I watched some of it. There must have been NFL on. I started paying more attention to. At some point, I was just like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good on this. We have Jed Fish. I'm just going to be happy with the University of Washington for now. Uh, and then I, I kind of pulled it back up in the second half, and the Huskies were still down 10 with like four or five minutes left. And I was like, I don't need to do this to myself, in fact. It was like Mateo turning off the Eagles game. It's like, you know what? I'd rather not see the end so of you, this.
1: you showed the same level of maturity as your seven-year-old.
2: I actually was the one who turned off the Eagles game for him, but... <laughs> Uh, that's what we're doing in 2024 we're just turning off things we don't want to see but the when UCLA was losing at Utah it was so shocking that I was like this game is so bad that it must be so completely demoralizing for the university in general and also I know that they're going to beat
1: Utah on Sunday I deeply know deep in my bones there has just never
2: been a thing that has been more set in stone than UW losing that game to UCLA after losing, they lost 90 to 44. Like, to me, I was like, man, Mick Cronin, I, I assume that he has, he's still their coach, right? Yes. I assume he has pretty secure job stability based upon their success. Over, like, he has been the most successful UCLA coach for a very long time.
1: He's the first person to take them to the Final Four since... Uh, they won the national championship under Jim Herrick. So, yeah.
2: Steve Lavin never went to the Final Four?
1: I don't think so. They went to the I'm, Sweet 16 a lot, but I don't think they ever went to the Final Four.
2: I'm pretty sure they went to the Final Four with him one time. In, like, 2004 or something. I think they, like, snuck in. I mean, maybe or 2006, the, somewhere around there.
1: Maybe to the... Well, 2006 was Ben Howland. They did go to the Final... Oh, you're right. They did oh. go to the Final Four. Back-to-back years under Ben Howland. Yeah, you're yeah, right.
2: I was going to say, that's definitely wrong. Okay. But... At the same time, having a loss that devastating is pretty brutal. And it makes me wonder.
1: Did they go three consecutive years to the final four? I think you're you're
2: forgetting how good UCLA was. But they were never that good. They just were good in the NCAA tournament. I just
1: forgot about the Ben Hellen tier entirely. I was just thinking of Steve Alfred and Steve Laffin.
2: (laughs) But when I was thinking about McCrona's job security... It reminded me that a coach also lost to that UCLA team that lost 90 to 44. And right now, it's not Troy Dannon's guy. Troy Dannon's kind of feeling himself. He had a pretty good coaching search for Jed Fish, felt good, looked good, made his stamp. Right now, he's taking victory laps, he's joking about the Seahawks. And uh, I, I think that the hop extension meter is at zero. Right now, I think it is NCAA tournament or bust, and it might not even happen with the NCAA tournament. But
1: like, I, think it, I think probably, realistically, it was always going to take an NCAA tournament run for Mike Hopkins to remain the Huskies head coach beyond this season. I I mean, I, I what I would tell you is Pelton cast golden rule here. Like, if the Huskies play well enough from this point forward to make it, the ncaa tournament yes by definition they will have gone on a pretty impressive run that will feel very differently about the program if that happens i would also say i do think there's an element like the the turnovers against ucla were extremely frustrating Uh, i didn't see the first half but you know based on listening to everyone who was and just watching the score was frustrating enough uh, they finished with 19 for the game, six for Sevilla Beer Wheeler, five for Braxton Mia. Who, like, that's really kind of one of the stories of the season with this Frank Kepnong injury lasting an indeterminate period of time. Now, day to day for the entire season, Frank Kepnong. Uh, I, there is also the element where a lot of the difference between Thursday, where they they kind of kind of beat up on Arizona State. And Sunday was three point shooting. Like, this is why, to me, the whole like obsessing over individual game outcomes in a long season with basketball is kind of meaningless. On Thursday, they went 13 of 25 from three. Arizona State shot four of 17. On Sunday, they shot six of 25 from three. UCLA, an extremely poor shooting team, shot six of 14. And like, even if you go back to Thursday for UCLA, they shot three of 17 at Utah. Utah shot 52% from three. They were 13 of 25. Like, so much of the shit is just whether threes go in or not.
2: That's fine, but they don't have wiggle room right now. They've lost too many games to be like, well, they shot bad on threes in that game. And they lost too bad of a team. UCLA is not like a, a normal loss where it's within range. Well, I mean, Kempom must have had the Huskies winning this game by a handful of points.
1: Uh, let me see here. I mean, yes, the answer is yes. Let me see what the projection was. Uh, it's only Huskies by four. Home court advantage is pretty important in college basketball in a way that people underestimate.
2: Even still, like, what did they end up losing by 10, 11, 12? So, yeah, I mean, 12? they dropped That's They dropped 10 point spots point in Kenpon. Against a team that had just lost 90 to 44 against Utah. They didn't just lose. They lost embarrassingly. Like, they lost so badly that I told you I had to click on the game to make sure that the score wasn't wrong.
1: Yes, they were doubled up. I mean, it's wild. So Ken Palm still has the Huskies finishing 10 and 10 in conference. I don't think that's going to be nearly enough to put them on the bubble at this point. I think they got to go 12 and 8 at Wart's, which would mean going 10 and 4 the rest of the conference season.
2: It's bleak. And and this is not the way that this team was supposed to be. And they didn't look this way all season. But now that they've gotten to Pac-12 play... A severe Wheeler did not have a good game against UCLA and some of those turnovers. You're just like, what are you doing right now? It, it was very sloppy. They're supposed to be an experienced team. That's the other thing is it's not like, I mean, I, uh, Hop has recruited fairly well for the class coming in, but this is an older team right now. It's not like, well, we're just getting started.
1: That's not Michael Porter Jr. walking through that door.
2: <laughs> UW wouldn't care at all anyway, even if it was. Was it Jen Cohn who fired Lorenzo Romar? It was,
1: yes. Uh, as a reminder, uh, hiring is a very small sample size.
2: Firing is not a small sample size.
1: No, I think exactly. that is a small sample size. As
2: well. It's a much larger sample size of Lorenzo Romar's success at UW. She didn't hire Lorenzo Romar, though, right?
1: No, no, obviously. She inherited Lorenzo Romar, who was hired by, oh, geez, which athletic director hired Lorenzo Romar? Is it? I think it was... Was it Barbara Hedges still?
2: Wow. Excuse me. Who was the guy after Todd Turner? Is that the right name?
1: Todd yeah. Turner, yeah.
2: Was there somebody in between there? No. Okay. Uh, athletic directors like to hire their own coaches. And and I honestly... I trust Troy Dan with this... hiring more than I would trust a lot of people. I mean, I think what he did with Jed Fish was... Pretty impressive, and the commitment that they showed to really finding a winning coach—they went in and got basically the number one name out there.
1: I don't think they got Pete Carroll, but but they but they sort they of got, did. They kind of did. Sort of did. We'll and try and also, Troy, Troy
2: Dannon has the relationship with Pete. He developed a—I don't know when it started or whatever—but he worked to develop a relationship with Pete Carroll. He did it. He's done a pretty good job so far. Like, Troy Dinan seems like he's somebody who's he's trying to fucking win.
1: Well, as opposed to these other athletic directors who are hoping to lose when they hire their coaches.
2: There's a certain level of aggressiveness.
1: I suppose so. Should we shift into talking about UW football here?
2: Wait, where, what else are we going to talk about?
1: Well, we do have to talk about UW <laughs> basketball. Their <laughs> upcoming week in the Bay Area uh, as they continue this road trip. Thursday at Cal, who's 6-11, and 11 under first-year head coach Mark Madsen, but uh, competitive 2-4 and four in conference play. They lost to Arizona State by two at home, and their two other losses are, two of their three other losses are by less than double digits. Their wins came at UCLA, of course, and by four at home over Colorado. It's a pretty good offense led by NBA prospect Jalen Tyson on the wing, but they cannot stop anybody defensively. Stanford is nine and seven, but boasts a win over Arizona as part of their four and two conference start. They also took down Utah at home, but somehow lost at home to Arizona State before beating Arizona. Uh, this is you know, Pac-12.
2: Don't do don't say somehow. You don't understand how Pac-12 works. Football, That's a, basketball. That's a
1: good point. Cardinal shot 39% shoot 39% from three led by 53% on decent volume from stretch four branded angel. So keep an eye on him. Andre Stojakovic son of Pesha, only shooting okay this season, but uh, playing a key role for them off the bench. Wow. Okay. As a reminder, we're all very old.
2: Uh, I mean, these are two must win games though.
1: Yeah. And Stanford is a game that they are not favored to win because again, home court advantage is pretty significant. All right, let's talk UW football. Uh, so Tuesday was Jed Fish's introductory press conference. They've also now announced four assistant coaches, all of them joining him from Arizona. Uh, Jimmy Doherty is passing game coordinator and quarterback coach. He previously served as the wide receiver coach at UW under Steve Sarkisian from 2009 and 2012, adding pass game coordinator title his final season before getting the offensive coordinator job at San Jose State. Uh, Scotty Graham is running back coach. Jordan Pow Pow is tight end coach and special teams coordinator. Pau Pau was at UW from 2011 through 2019. I didn't realize he was there that long. Working his way from a grad assistant to tight end coach under both Sark and Chris Peterson. I think he, I think there might have been two coaches who got retained from the Sark staff when Chris Peterson came in. And uh, he was one of them. And then Jason... Kaufusi Kawafusi is run game coordinator and defensive line coach. He coached defensive ends and outline outside linebackers at Arizona. So a slightly different role for him, uh, as well as Tyler Owens as director of strength and conditioning. Three other Arizona coaches were at fish's introductory press conference. Uh, those being offensive coordinator and offensive line coach, Brennan Carroll wide receiver coach, Kevin Cummings and cornerback coach, John Richardson uh, it's also been reported that Director of Player Personnel Matt Doherty, who we talked about on the Emergency Pod, is an important figure here. Came to Seattle with Fish, so uh, chances pretty good that we see all of them on staff. Although there are rumblings that Cummings could be in line for the offensive coordinator job at Arizona under the their replacement for Fish, uh, as they hired Prep Brennan, uh, Arizona alum, to replace him.
2: Seems a little strange to me that he would be at the introductory press conference. I agree and not be pretty confident about a job. I I would assume that that is basically just there's still negotiations happening over salary right now, and that's it.
1: Well, you've got one way you could get more leverage.
2: Yeah. No, that seems fair. I mean, I think this is basically chalk as far as kind of who we're expecting to come over, which is nice. I mean, this was part of it. We talked about Brennan Carroll in particular uh, being an important person to bring into the program. We saw Pete Carroll at UW today. It's great. It is instant that it's happening, and the thing is, everybody loves Pete Carroll
1: <laughs> as long as he's not making fourth down decisions for you team. You love Pete Carroll.
2: I mean, just on a he's everything about Pete Carroll is great as a person, as long as he's not making decisions about football specifically, uh, and how to structure a defense. So having him in the building, how to use second round picks. <laughs> Having him in the building is a huge deal for the program in general, and it's going to be helpful in general. You know, there was a moment where I was like, oh, God, Brennan Carroll is going to get the head coach job at Arizona, so I'm happy that that didn't end up happening. Uh, Who knows long-term how I'll be here, but Pete Carroll is going to be a fixture of the UW program. We're going to see him on the sideline at UW games next year, and that is going to be very, very fun. And when he's having those conversations with recruits, when he's having those conversations with transfers, it is a big deal having Pete carroll in the
1: house yeah had made the point that uh you know the Pete carroll even though he's technically an advisor which uh it, by the day it becomes more clear oh, that, I, that was yeah. just like if someone else is going to hire this guy's head coach we're going to trade him and not you know let him go there for free by firing him
2: i think it also uh, softened the blow
1: sure it made it easier to Trot him out there for the press conference and, you know, give him his moment of glory as opposed to if it was just like, see you later, Pete. Don't let the door hit you. Uh, Jed Fish said former Seahawks coach Pete Carroll is quote is going to. Oh, but anyway, what Brock Heward said is like the, him being at the Seahawks facility, it's too soon. But him being at the Husky facility, that's like that's like the perfect role right now for Pete no, Carroll.
2: It's kind of incredible how this worked out. So
1: great. Uh, Jed Fish was asked about it, obviously, during the press conference on Tuesday and said that Carroll is uh, a mentor close by and ready to help. And I, one way he can help is by calling a bunch of recruits and also yeah. current players who are considering possible transfers.
2: I, I get the feeling that that is happening uh very, very quickly. That Pete is having those conversations right now, just being around. You yes. know what I mean? You just you walk into the building. Oh, Pete Carroll's here a surprise. Oh, he won a Super Bowl national championship. Pete Carroll just happened to be in the building. So I, I think that is a very important thing right now as they kind of scramble to get the roster in place. It's going to be especially important. I don't think we can dwell too much on this particular time period and even next season necessarily. I do think when we talk about Jed Fish, we talk about this coaching staff. It has to be a multiple year growth and plan for what they're
1: doing. 100% 100% agreed. Yeah, and I think,
2: I, mean... I, oh, I was mentioning this to you about Sark at Texas, right? Obviously, there's a lot of talent in the building at Texas when Sark took over. He went five and seven in his first year. And it was just incremental. And you see like the players that are now going to Texas, Isaiah Bond transferring there, Silas Bolden transferring there. Like Texas is in some ways the number one program in the country at this very moment. And Coach Sark built it up. There was one fine year or there was one down year, there was one fine year, and then they were in the playoff. So if that's if that's kind of what Jedfish could build here, it's, you know, Texas is a bigger program than U-Dub, but like, it's something that can be built year over year, and I don't think it needs to be. We expect next season the Huskies to be as good as they were this year, or even the Huskies to be as good as Arizona would have been, or the Huskies two years ago. This is a rebuilding year. This is, we're looking for the offense to be pretty solid, and we're looking for glimpses of the future, built program building stuff, and then the next year growing from that.
1: I agree with that. I I like that Chad Fish really emphasized his NFL experience mm-hmm. is a tool in recruiting, and the fact that they play a pro style offense and, and defense. I I do think that's that's been an important part of UW's pitch to recruits for a long period of time. Is look, we don't necessarily. Get the uh, most talented, you know, recruits in terms of star rankings, but players here consistently develop and go to the NFL. And you look around and watch the playoff games. And you mentioned Kdot Pukenikua, uh obviously didn't wild. finish his career at know but setting the rookie receiving record for playoff yards after having this amazing rookie season. Oh no, I w- did.
2: I would be reminding Teterow McMillan exactly where Pukunukuah started college. And exactly where Roma Dunze is going to be drafted. And the last Arizona receiver was drafted in the first round.
1: I, I don't know. Maybe there was one that I just don't remember.
2: It's been a while. Wait, where did RJ Howard go? Was he uh Arizona State? Anyway, uh, it's been a while. Was that his name? RJ Howard? I swear it, I know it's the dude's doesn't, name.
1: Doesn't ring a bell to me. I got to be honest with you.
2: Uh, anyway.
1: Let's see here. RJ
2: Soured was his oh, name. Okay. Oh, okay. Wow. Do you
1: know how many first-round picks all-time there have been from the University of Arizona?
2: I don't
1: Do you know who the last... Know. Actually, let's put it this way. Do you know when the last time was an Arizona player was drafted in the first round? <laughs> there
2: had to be one post-trunk candidate. There,
1: there is one. Tr- precisely McAllister? one post-trunk There's candidate. only one? Antoine Kaysen in 2008, the 27th wow. pick.
2: I remember that. So, I mean, it's kind of like a lot of their better players also. were. Like Foles was drafted in the second round, I want to say. And Gronk was the second round pick.
1: Right. That's, That's still cool. wild, though.
2: So UW will have more first round picks this year than Arizona has had in the last 26 years?
1: In you know, all likelihood,
2: yes. Wow. I mean, there's an outside shot that UW will have four this year.
1: You're thinking Odunze, Penix, one of the other receiver, two of the other receivers, in, or one of the other receivers. Possibly in Braylon.
2: Possibly Braylon tries. Oh, Braylon tries, yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically guaranteed to have, I would say, two, not calling the specific players, but two is almost a lock. Odunze is a lock for the first round, and then somebody else is probably going in the first round. But I've seen Pox have all four of those players.
1: So the Huskies, since the last Washington player was drafted, or since the last Arizona player in, was drafted in the first round, I should say, have had nine first-round picks.
2: I mean, they've all been relatively recent, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, there was uh, Jake Locker in 2011, but other than him, yes. So? They're, they're all 2015 or... No, there's, I guess or- they were over time. Font was 2013.
2: Wow, Desmond Trufant. I forgot he was a first-round pick. Yeah. Uh, look, I would just be making those players aware of that. That's it.
1: But you've not only got Jen Fish's perspective as someone who worked in the NFL, you've been got Pete Carroll's perspective. So that's pretty cool.
2: And, and I also think just even what happened this last year, like Arizona's been building something very good and many teams around the country. This is not specifically just about Arizona recruits, but there is something about having a person on the Heisman podium at number two in the college football playoff. And I don't think Kalen DeBoer deserves, you can't just look at that and be like, that's all Kalen DeBoer because it's the program. It is the institution that that happened to. So
1: yeah, it's also the the platform. So yeah, yeah, well, I think that's fair.
2: I, I had one other thought on the jet jet fish hiring. I don't know how much we really need to talk about this. I feel like we've talked about it a lot, but I was thinking about, that should be very thankful about this because I think what we really saw was there's the report about the Arizona hiring Jedfish wasn't a priority for Arizona. And I think ultimately what that meant was Arizona just doesn't have the kind of money to go out and pay a coach like Jedfish in the way that UW does right now, especially with UW going to the Big Ten. And I do think we're seeing a pretty clear divide of Big 12 is sub Big Ten and SEC. There, there are tiers to the conferences now. It is the SEC, it is the Big Ten, and then it's everybody else.
1: There were think, already tiers to the conferences. It's just they're, they're in sharper relief now.
2: Exactly. And it's financial, but it's also prestige and clout. Jedfish is one of, aside from, I, do, I don't know how you'd really classify the ACC at the moment. The ACC is sort of like tier one of that. But the Big 12 lost their two biggest programs this year. So of the Big Twelve coaches, he was probably the most desirable coach left of almost anybody else, and you could debate the Kansas coaches, etc.
1: I think so- they were all in the same tier. I I do think it has become more evident that you know the the other thing that I think made Fish stand out that you talked about it was the diversity of his his resume, the fact that Lance Leipold and Chris Kleiman had. Coached at you know a handful of different schools. Jet Fish, for better or worse, like he has experience in all sorts of different places, including in the Big Ten during the time he spent at Michigan. And I think that was very attractive to Troy Dannon and to UW. I,
2: I think the age piece is also underrated in this. He's about a decade younger than Chris, Chris Kleiman and Lance Leipold as well. And
1: one of them just, is 56. One of them is 59. Jet Fish is 49.
2: So he's not 49, isn't he? 47 years old. Okay. Uh, So being about a decade or a little bit more younger means that there's just like a little bit more vitality there, but also you're just, if, if everything goes right, everything is the perfect scenario. That's another 10 years coaching on the end that it's unlikely. And that's not what you should be planning for necessarily, but it is a helpful thing. But the thing that I was thinking about was there are these tiers to the conferences and the number one team that should be thinking about how thankful they are in this very moment to the university of Washington is the team from down South in Oregon, because do you know what happened this off season? They kept their coach and Dan Lanning, probably the most desirable young coach around the country because one day back last August, the university of Washington called them and said, We're taking this deal for the Big Ten. We are going to the Big Ten. And you better join us, basically. Take it or leave it. We are going. By doing that in that exact moment, you can look at all the little dominoes, games, individual things that happen. The Washington Huskies convincing Oregon, who are happy to be in the Pac-10 as it was, which would have been a sub-conference. Everything else irrelevant of Oregon Washington all the movement that happened after that had they kept it together as the Pac-10 with USC and UCLA leaving this next year the Big Ten would still be the Big Ten and the SEC would still be the SEC Pac- the Pac-10 as it were would be on that same tier with the Big 12 maybe even lower the smaller amount of money coming long term UW by making that move by making that call saved Dan Lanning in Oregon by letting him know that he was going to the Big Ten next year. Him being a Big Ten coach is why he's at Oregon. If not, he might be the head coach of Alabama this very moment, and if not there, somewhere else. So it could have been Texas A&M, could have been somewhere else. But by making that call, UW saved Oregon Dan Lanning long-term. Okay. it's It's a fascinating thing to think about.
1: It, there's a lot of dominoes right now. This, this
2: whole this whole coaching carousel about how you you it all trickles back to that move and where you is the hiring of Jed Fish. I don't if if the Pac-10 is together. Kalen DeBoer up and leaves for Alabama. I don't know if Jed Fish is going across conference to do that. I would agree with that. So it is kind of interesting just to see. How and, and look, every there's a butterfly effect, to all this stuff, but that decision that happened put UW and Oregon, UCLA, USC on a different tier than all of these other programs. So it's a sad thing that happened, but you know, we saw it with Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. It's it's a fascinating moment in time. And to the people of Oregon, you're welcome.
1: All right. So getting back to UW, uh, the piece of good news. In 247sports.com's transfer portal news today, was that quarterback Dyson McCutcheon has withdrawn his notification yeah, I'm, I'm of transfer. The,
2: the, I, it's good news is already there's no singular, it can't be good news. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a way to make it singular,
1: people have two years of eligibility remaining after seeing limited action as a reserve. But really, the important thing is here is to highlight that again, as we talked about. In the De DeBoer emergency pod, just because a player submits a notification of transfer does not mean he transfers, actually. And this mm-hmm. is, I don't know what about the, trans, the idea of transfers just warps people's brains entirely. <laughs> but the transfer portal is just a database and you can put your name into it, but you can also take your name back out of it. And as we talked about under De DeBoer, it did seem to be the Huskies policy that if you If you submitted a notification of transfer, entered your name into there, there was no coming back. The the door was closed behind you. But it was easy to say when the guys who were doing it were guys who were leaving because they weren't playing or because there was a disciplinary issue. It's very different when 17 players by Jen Fisher's count during his press conference have submitted notifications of transfer, which absolutely they should do. There's no reason not to. It's like declaring for the NBA draft. You know, once you've, uh, have only one year of eligibility remaining. There's no downside to it. You should absolutely explore your options. And then, if UW is still the best fit for you, awesome, come back. So, let's list, list the players who Ugh. have submitted notifications <laughs> to transfer. It still doesn't feel good. I don't, <laughs> but just like we don't need to overact, they're not gone yet. There's a
2: we recruiting, nice it... and the news is definitely there's like deep blue something here a little bit. It's like.
1: Recruiting, Jed Fish said, is his most important task right now before he goes out and recruits other players. He's got to keep guys around, which is we've talked about is one of the most important things came DeBoer did when he took. Tyson McCutcheon is
2: the one that we've got right now.
1: So both all three quarterbacks, scholarship quarterbacks (laughs) on the roster, Will Rogers, Austin Mack, and then incoming recruit William Haskell. uh, Jeremy Bernard, Uh, tight end Trey Watson, who transferred here from Fresno State, has already committed to Texas A&M. That one feels a
2: little different to me.
1: That's sort of different because I think the guys who transferred in, including obviously Will Rogers, like you don't have the same ties to UW. They've maybe not even attended a class yet, you know, depending on the timing of when they did. He
2: specifically was a Kalen DeBoer player.
1: Correct. He had committed to him from Fresno State. But also the other thing is if you were previously in the transfer portal, you know exactly what the options are out there, <laughs> and which other teams were interested in you before you committed to UW. So you have a pretty good idea of where you might want to go if it's not UW. Uh, on the offensive line, starting guard Nate Colepo, starting center Parker Brailsford. Oh. Brailsford, I think, is a really crucial one to re-recruit. Also uh, from Arizona. Three years of eligibility remaining. Uh, linebacker Ethan Barr, another of the incoming transfers. The Vanderbilt linebacker, right? Yeah, and then... Uh, Jabbar Muhammad, Mish Powell, Ugh. and Asa Turner. When Jabbar
2: Muhammad was like his number one choice was Oregon. That one, that I one didn't sung. see
1: that. Uh, Asa Turner was at the Jed Fish press conference on Tuesday, so perhaps that's an encouraging sign that he'll be coming. You gotta back.
2: stay, Asa. Come on.
1: Uh, so seven Huskies, or no? Yeah, a total of seven Huskies, I believe, have <sighs> declared for the NFL draft. Uh, new ones. Troy. Since we last talked, Troy Fautanu. <laughs> Dylan Johnson, Jalen McMillan, Roman Dunze, and Braylon Trice.
2: There weren't any surprises though.
1: Like McMillan like, was everything. the one who we thought was maybe on the fence after his injury-plagued season, whether he might come back to have a better final season in college.
2: And and he he also declared pre
1: kalen DeBoer, so that wasn't Correct. a Calen DeBoer. I don't think any of these decision. were Kalen DeBoer decisions. No, I no, think no, no. Odunze I don't was think so the only either. was Dunze was the only one who declared after DeBoer left, I believe. I, don't, I might have the timing wrong on that, but uh, like Dylan Johnson was another one where, you know, it wasn't considered 100% certainty he would go. But like,
2: I didn't even know he had a year of eligibility left. I thought Dylan Johnson was gone already.
1: Right. We know the nature of the running back position and how short careers those players have in the NFL. Every running back should declare as soon as they can. And as soon as they <laughs> have They're like real- 16
2: years old in their prime.
1: <laughs> as soon as they have realistic NFL draft stock. <laughs> so good for him, and uh, that is one spot where it looks like the Huskies almost certainly will be adding a player from Arizona. As uh, all indications are that Jonah Coleman uh, submitted a notification of transfer after uh, Jed Fish's departure, will follow him to UW. Jonah
2: Coleman's that's that's been announced that he's planning on coming. It's, to UW. it's not been announced, but that's that's, that's the chatter
1: it's been reported by people close to the program. 24 sports, seven sports has him a 100% crystal ball to you. Dub presumably he had the, one of the do not contact that suggests you already have your next destination lined up. Do
2: not contact. I mean, Jonah Coleman last year, 6.8 yards per carry, 871 yards oh, and involved three years in the... of eligibility left. Oh yeah, this is. Yeah. And, and I think the, the piece that he's also involved in the receiving game at 283 receiving yards, like Jonah Coleman is good. All caps, you know, Jonah Coleman is somebody who, when we talk about that three-year turnaround that Jed Fish might have, him being here at the program is a huge part of it. In college, where running backs might matter? I think uh, they do. Have, having having nobody to block for him isn't great, uh, <laughs> but maybe that'll be a good conversation with Parker Brailsford as well, uh, and knowing that there's going to be a running back there. I also think when we're having... I don't, are we going to talk about the other Arizona players?
1: I mean, I don't... There's rumblings that Noah Fafita and Tetero McMillan might stay. Chris uh, Dennis Todd from CBS Sports reported that, but it was more of a might again. And Kevin Cummings was considered part of that, and we'll see where he ends up.
2: Having a player from Arizona as part of that offense commit to... I didn't know that Jonah Coleman, that there was that many rumblings about UW. So having him commit to UW is like, hey that the word was that Noah Fafita, Tedaro and McMillan were trying to keep this together. They didn't say where they just said they were trying to keep this together. So losing your number one running back to a program is, I mean, I feel bad looking at Arizona's players and being like, should be nice to have them, but it sure would be nice to have them.
1: <laughs> I mean, whether us looking at them is not really going to affect their decisions. So we shall see. We shall see on all of that.
2: But you talk about these sliding doors moments that happen. And I think watching what really these two players in Arizona do, because there's going to be dominoes that fall because of them, is the difference between, is this going to be a three-year rebuild in Seattle? Or is UW going to be competing for the playoff next year? And so I think that's why it's kind of wild to just watch this decision that's happening. And I'm like, Is there NIL money that can be found? Can I go buy a poster, a hoodie? I will do all of those things, whatever is necessary. Uh, But I I think that there is a full court press happening behind the scenes right now with those players. I hope there isn't is
1: they cannot be contacted at the moment until they, oh, they can't be contacted until they,
2: until they enter the portal.
1: Yes. (laughs) It was very amusing. I was watching the ESPN broadcast and they mentioned that they, uh, uh, of Tennessee and, and Florida men's basketball, and they were talking about uh, Tennessee transfer Dalton Connect, who's now an NBA first-round prospect, after transferring from Northern Colorado. And they were like, well, we talked to uh, uh, Rick Barnes before the game and asked him when he thought Connect first thought about transferring. He was like, oh, not until after the season. I was like, well, maybe that's true, but also you better say that if you're Rick Barnes.
2: Yeah, Jonah Coleman can have a conversation with them.
1: He can, well, but only them, apparently. Uh, anyways, yes, I, it's it's gonna be an important thing. One last point on Jed Fish. So, John Wilder made the case that the buyout figures for Fish, which are, I don't even
2: John Wilder,
1: so ten million the first year drops pretty quickly in subsequent years if he leaves. Uh, one interesting thing is because of the fact that his contract was signed so late, it is a little bit different. Because if you're leaving. Like, the timing of this is all very different from when the college football co- carousel, norm, coaching carousel normally is, which is in, like, early December. So that may work to UW's benefit. But I think the big thing to take away here is that if Jetfish is such a desirable coach that he's going to be hired by a school that is going to offer him more money than UW, he'll already have signed an extension at UW. He won't be on this contract anymore. So I would not spend one second worried about that buyout.
2: I, I think that is John Wilner positioning a narrative that he has incentivized. Deboer. I mean, it
1: is certainly true that his buyout is lower even than Kaelin DeBoer's was relatively, you know, in was terms of the same number. Lower of than years. the
2: first contract that Kaelin DeBoer
1: signed. Yes. So that's that's interesting, it, and I do think that Jed Fish's agent negotiated, which I I think is also Jimmy Sexton. It's Jimmy
2: Sexton, but <laughs> he signed this contract after this current carousel. This is kind of I think I mean it's the most impacted. UW coaching carousel that's ever happened
1: it's 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 only going to continue
2: this is so far i think the wildest coaching carousel we've ever seen i mean it's very rare that the number one job opens up i mean it hasn't happened for 15 years
1: correct but also two years ago lsu usc both opened up and therefore notre dame and oklahoma both opened up so i think this is kind of the new normal in college football but again, no, if, Jed I, Fish I totally does, has, if Jed Fish has two good seasons in U at UW, guess what? He's gonna get a new and even longer and even more lucrative contract because the money. What, what is your line? The money is endless.
2: Oh, the money is endless. That not at Arizona, apparently. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they need some of that money to uh, to retain their men's basketball coach. That's um, what they I really would, wouldn't mind him either. <laughs> <Tell> me, <laughs> I don't think Tommy the big... coming. The Big 12 is a pretty legit basketball conference. Yeah, it's a very legit basketball conference. Uh, uh, should we t- should we, anything else on football?
2: I, I'm very fascinated to see where this ends up going. I'm excited to hear about hearing about Jonah Coleman right here. Uh, I'm excited about that. I thought it was also interesting that so far, I think there was word that Parker Brailsford had interest from Alabama. We haven't seen a ton of players look to Alabama so far who entered the I, portal.
1: I mean, I don't know. Maybe I overestimate the difference between Alabama and UW. I do feel about Alabama. We've talked about this before on the pod, the famous quote about uh, uh, Julian Green uh-huh. and and Germany being like, we have an entire pond of Julian Greens or whatever the line was. I,
2: I'm not sure. I mean, look, Alabama has talent on their roster. And I think the players who would have gone to Alabama are going to the NFL. But it is a little interesting. Like Jabbar Muhammad could play at Alabama. That That isn't something that they immediately turned around and did. And that, that to me makes me maybe a little bit more nervous about looking at Arizona players because I do think that there's a little bit of an effect of like, damn, our coach just left us. Not like, let's all go. There's an effect of, damn, our coach just up and left us where we were.
1: That's probably fair. All right, let's talk about the Seahawks. And let's start with the return of a listener email. Oh, hello. I don't think I even told you about this, that this was a thing from third Pelton brother, Zach Jabal on Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick, which I need to scroll in because his font was extremely tiny here. <laughs> I feel like the that's birth how of... you know
2: it's a good email.
1: I feel like the birth of the Pelton cast discord has kind of put on a damper on emails from the listener. And well, in general, that's a fine trade off. I won't be ignored quite that easily. <laughs> <laughs> Would be ignored. (laughs) It's hard for me not to think about Bill Belichick when I think about Pete Carroll. Obviously, their careers have had several noteworthy points of intersection from Belichick replacing Carroll as head coach in New England to the curious circumstances surrounding the final minute of Super Bowl Forty I'm sure that each has a certain level of respect for one another, but it's the contrast between the two that is most noteworthy to me. In the history books, Belichick will be seen rightly as the most successful head coach in NFL history. He has the rings, and we've all counted them. Carroll's legacy will be largely positive, too. Obviously, no one can compare with Belichick in a pure numerical accounting, but between the dominance of the early 2010 Seahawks, the historic nature of their Super Bowl victory, and his long tenure in Seattle, I have no doubt that Carroll will be regarded as one of the great coaches in NFL history as well. Yet, Belichick embodies everything I hate about football. Wow. The grim, joyless way he approached everything about football was directly at odds with Pete's obvious delight in what he did. Belichick's legacy is of an efficient dictator. He treated everyone from players to coaches to media members with a mix of scorn and cold calculation. His lasting contribution to the sport is in treating players like fungible assets in his best as, as he could, ignoring their messy humanness in pursuit of yet another victory. For Belichick, winning seemed to prompt it. no delight, no celebration, but at best a very momentary respite before returning to his endless toil. <laughs> this tenure <laughs> has brought forth championships, yes, but also scandals, countless rifts with team legends, and a long-standing war with the media that covered the team. Carroll wasn't perfect, and I'm sure he had times where he mistreated people, but his warmth, his decency, and the way he cared about the people who made up the Seahawks over the whole of his time there was right out in the open. Sometimes that probably made the on-the-field product worse. He was nothing if not moved by his emotions. Uh, insert parenthetical where you're talking about Pete Carroll's emotional challenges. He grinned and strutted on the sidelines when things went well. He stared incredulously when they didn't. He reminded us when you could win the game. and He coached like a reasonably gregarious and well-meaning human one. You could sum up the difference thusly. Pete was intrigued by the notion of scorigami and delighted in the fact that the Seahawks had won many such games, while Belichick's platonic ideal was unquestionably winning every game to nothing. <laughs> History will sort the two men into different tiers among Hall of Fame coaches, but I have no doubts about which one I'm glad was a Seahawk. He made it of one forever, but goddammit Pete Carroll gave us one hell of a ride. Damn! Let's freaking go! <laughs> you want to reach higher Pete Carroll now, don't you?
2: No, that's, that's what I'm saying. Literally every time that even I was talking about Pete Carroll and asking him to retire, it was always with the caveat of Pete Carroll seems like a really good guy. There was never a moment, like, that's not a thing you would say about Bill Belichick or almost any other coach, right? It's not a thing I mean, you would say about Jim Harbaugh. It's just you really, really, really like Pete Carroll on a personal level, and he wasn't the right football coach. That's it. Those two things can be true at the same time. So... I agree with all of that. It was so much fun watching Pete Carroll play or coach football. And it was fun being a fan of the Seahawks during that era. And then we got to experience that with Pete Carroll. And I I don't think it's the best era of football that we'll have ever seen. You know, it'll be the most fun era of football. It became the time when the Seahawks for me maybe were the number one team, but they were perfectly there right after the Sonics left they were there to fill in that hole and they became the number one sports team in Seattle for me and the number one sports team overall. So, And it's a huge part because
1: of Pete Carroll. I hate to defend Bill Belichick. I will give him a little credit. I do think there was a certain joy that Bill Belichick took in like the nerdy aspects of football that Zach is underselling. Like when people asked him special teams questions and he would like give like a three-paragraph long answer in his weekly press conference, like that was kind of fun in a certain way, and probably was more evident to like Patriots fans than it was those of us on the outside. But I I mean I do ultimately agree. Like to me, the most important thing about Pete Carroll is the way that even though he obviously was a hugely important figure on the Seahawks and a character in his own right. He also, like Bill Belichick, it seemed like wanted to squash all the Patriots into just do your job. And Pete Carroll was willing to let Seahawks players be big personalities and be themselves. And the way that that got the most out of, you know, people like Marshawn Lynch and Richard Sherman and Doug Baldwin Jr. And like people were like, very different personalities, but all part of the Pete Carroll tree. And that's why one of the coolest things that happened in the last week was obviously like Russell Wilson coming back and being part of that Pete Carroll celebration night. And Pete talked about it on Seattle sports in his kind of farewell press con interview. The uh, Russell Wilson and Richard Sherman telling him that like, look what had to happen for the two of us to have a friendly conversation. Again, (laughs) you had to be fired basically. (laughs) That's really funny. I mean, I I look if Pete Carroll wants to coach again, that's awesome for him. I do kind of hope he doesn't because it does probably make it faster that we can get to the period where Pete Carroll is just like Seahawks legend Pete Carroll. Totally agree.
2: And Huskies legend Pete Carroll. And and I think that's the thing about Bill Belichick is like the Bill Belichick kind of is going out with a whimper right now in a way that Pete Carroll didn't. Right, Some of these seasons that the Patriots have had are significantly worse than any season Pete Carroll ever had, almost anywhere, as a Seahawks coach and at almost any stop. These seasons that Belichick has had, like, Belichick doesn't look great right now. And Pete Carroll freaking won with Geno Smith, you know? Pete Carroll won a a playoff game with Matt Hasselbeck, with Charlie Whitehurst, and Pete Carroll won with Geno Smith. Pete Carroll won no matter who was playing for him. He was best... With Russell Wilson, but what he did in these two seasons with Geno Smith was in some ways the most impressive thing that Pete Carroll did in winning all these games. It wasn't right long-term, and his his scheme wasn't set up to make sense for this team long-term and the way that they invested draft picks and the way that they traded draft picks. But like Pete Carroll did a more impressive thing after his, I don't want to say Hall of Fame quarterback, maybe? After his long-term superstar quarterback, Tom Brady didn't. And Tom Brady's now seeking that next job right away. Like, the or Bill Belichick is seeking that next job right away. He's asking for the pain. He's asking to go out there and continue coaching and maybe lose more. Right now, Pete Carroll's just at the Husky offices chilling, having a good time, and his kid there, and he seems very happy. So... I think Pete Carroll is winning forever right now, and I don't think Bill Belichick is. That's true. I feel like Saban is actually kind of the middle ground. It's funny that those three coaches, the pillars, right? If if Pete Carroll's on one end, Bill Belichick is on the other end, Saban is kind of right in the middle. Seems like there's a little bit of joy, has a little bit of fun, a little like rye, but also would talk about how winning the national championship (laughs) means you couldn't recruit for that time period. An amazing quote still. So... Uh.
1: Do we want to do the part now where we were talking about how Pete Carroll reinforced why it might not be such a good thing for him to be the head coach of the Seahawks?
2: You know, it, it was it was a nice thing for Pete to have done for us in some of his yeah. a- exit quotes.
1: So again, in that Seattle sports interview that aired Friday was recorded Thursday on differences of opinion in postseason conversations with uh, Seahawks management. The difficult part is, if you guys could know, it's really hard because they're not football people. They're not coaches. And so to get to the real details of it is real difficult, really difficult for other people. And then he was asked whether he expected that. And he said, every year it feels like that, that you're going to be challenged by opinions. They're kind of media opinions, because what else do people have when you're outside the game? How could you know other than what you guys talk about on the radios and what the articles say and what the pundits are drawing conclusions on? That's why you have to go on realizing that what you're dealing with and then try to talk through to get to the essence of this stuff. That's always going to be a challenge because when you don't have legitimate dyed in the wool football people calling the shots, then you have to try to make sense of it. Just like we did try to make sense of it for your audience. It's no different.
2: I'm not even super sure I understand what that means. Ultimately.
1: I think it means that the media convinced people that the convinced Jody Allen and Burt Cold that the Seahawks had a bad defense. <laughs> yeah. Just the all-encompassing power of the media. If they
2: were football people, they would have loved some of those punts.
1: <laughs> I mean, I the one thing I don't like about the thing I don't like about this in particular, I don't think Pete Carroll intended it, is it plays into the stereotype of Jody Allen.
2: Oh, the sexism is definitely there.
1: I think it's actually much more about Burt Cold who has always been kind of the nebulous figure behind the scenes more on the Blazers side than the Seahawks side historically just cuz the Seahawks have had such stability in the Pete Carroll John Schneider era but Burt Cold is definitely doing a lot of things in Portland by all accounts behind the scenes the the Vulcans as they were uh, derisively referred to back <laughs> in the day uh, you don't hear that 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 phrase thrown around as much anymore uh he was undoubtedly a big part of this we've had it confirmed that he was part of these meetings but also like this is one of the things we often talk about from my experience in pro, pro sports like being on the inside do you have a lot more clarity about things yes but what you trade off for that is that you don't have perspective that you don't have objectivity. And I don't think P. Carroll was objectively accurate about how good his football team is. And it concerns me a little bit that John Schneider also thought they were, said today that he thought that they were pretty close to Super Bowl contention. Like, I would like someone with the Seahawks to step forward and say, hey, actually, no, we got outscored this season. We were a pretty mediocre fucking team and mm-hmm. we have a lot that we need to change. I'm not to sure. Fix I'm,
2: that. I will say John Schneider's trying to hire a head coach. I,
1: fair. Yes. <laughs> he, he is making that that case. I don't think he's going to change his tune necessarily after they hire, hire hire a head coach. That's one where you wonder if the Seahawks would have been better off just making a change at both GM and head coach at the same time.
2: We'll see, obviously. I mean, I think this is an important hire. Not, I think this is an important hire for John Schneider. And this is, this is sort of his moment, his like Bill Belichick post Tom Brady moment, which is what is John Schneider going to do when he's on his own? Because he has forever been linked to Pete Carroll as as long as he's been the executive. It's it's a hundred percent. John Schneider got the success with Pete Carroll. He got the blame with Pete Carroll. This is John Schneider on his own now, and we get to understand. I don't think we just. I don't think we knew what John Schneider's perspective was because it was so much about Pete Carroll and the on the field play and the personality of Pete Carroll we're finally going to get a sense of what does John Schneider want from this organization? And we see all these interviews, but like whomever he chooses for this job will give us a big amount of perspective of what John Schneider sees as winning football.
1: I, I thought it was an interesting, so he was asked about the background and, you know, kind of, Gave an open-ended answer, but one of the things he did point is out is the difficulty of if you have a defensive coach and you lose your offensive coordinator and having a lack of continuity at that position for your quarterback and for your offense in general, which I think is one of the reasons that we would point to to f- favor hiring an offensive coach rather than a defensive coach. He also made the case for special teams coaches, uh based on John Harbaugh's success and the, you know, kind of holistic nature of their position. They have not yet. Requested to interview any special teams. The John, John
2: Harbaugh's success is really doing a lot for special teams coaches I, out there.
1: I mean, I actually do think it makes sense because special teams coaches are the only ones that deal with potentially everyone on the roster in a unique way. Maybe. And they have to like think more strategically in some ways than off like coordinators and coordinators don't have to think about team sure management to the same degree. Coaches.
2: Who are like came up as special teams coaches, though. There's it's just there's a, not, it's a place you find yourself. If John Harbaugh wasn't hired as the head coach of the Ravens, he would have eventually been an offensive coordinator. Like,
1: I don't know what his background was. He would have been a defensive coordinator, right? Was he a defensive player?
2: Was he, he really... a quarterback?
1: Was he? I, I don't really remember. Uh. It's also fascinating, coaches that chain side of the ball is a, a fascinating thing to me. I think Raheem he Morris, really was a
2: special teams coordinator just for a long time. He was a defensive back at Miami of Ohio.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Running backs coach and outside linebackers at Western Michigan. I love that. Just doing it all.
1: I believe Raheem Morris coached a year of offense before he went back to defense, if I recall this correctly. Yeah, he was the wide receivers coach for the Falcons from 2016 through nineteen.
2: But here's here's to my point. He was the defensive backs coach before the year before he was the head coach of the Ravens. So uh. he was on the trajectory to become defensive coordinator. I agree and with that. It was I mean it was a long time as special teams coordinator at the Eagles and then defensive backs coach. But he wasn't like I mean it's honestly strange that a defensive backs coach was promoted to head coach. And I think his pedigree was a huge part of that. Like if he wasn't that's the piece that I was talking about head coach in the NFL. You just you need a thing. You either have to have a really good offense, be attached to somebody like that, been a head coach before or something, ha- have the uh, the name or whatever. But to be a head coach in the NFL and be successful, a lot of times, you just need a thing. And being John Harbaugh was his thing.
1: All right. Well, let's talk about the eight reported interview requests for the Seahawks so far. Evenly split thus far between defensive and offensive coordinators. Ajiro Avero, the Panthers defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham, the Reader's defensive coordinator. Ben Johnson, the Lions offensive coordinator, who uh, was Ben Baldwin's pick. Uh, Maybe some Ben nomenclature bias there. Mike Kafka, the Giants offensive coordinator. The The most
2: Kafka-esque of the coaches that they have interviewed.
1: Indisputably. Raheem Morris, the Rams defensive coordinator. Dan Quinn, coming off of that Cowboys loss, their defensive coordinator. Bobby Slovic, don't call him Slovic, the Texans offensive coordinator coming off the master class that the Texans offense put up against the Cleveland Browns on Saturday in their playoff win, and then Dolphins offensive coordinator Frank Smith.
2: I think the question you have to ask is, can Mike Kafka make that kind of metamorphosis into head coach? No, it is like seeing, seeing these interviews, literally there is nothing that can be gleaned from them.
1: They are interviewing everyone. And, and, uh, John Schneider said there are more to come that they haven't really yet considered college coaches, uh, We'll see, you know, how Jim Harbaugh factors into their search. If they're looking for the most John Harbaugh-esque candidate, I got to say, Jim Harbaugh is undoubtedly
2: the most Harbaugh candidate. I don't think Jack is going to be looking for a
1: job, so. You know, he's Uh, a little older than Pete Carroll. (laughs) Wow, how much older do you think Jack Harbaugh is? Oh, he's got to be at least 85. Come on. 84.
2: There you go. Okay, it's not. I mean, how old do we determine p Seventy-two. He's seventy-two. Okay. I like. Do we determine? <laughs> we <We're> triangulate.
1: <laughs> we counted the rings. <laughs> uh but top green is Tom green. Interested in go to uh, the CX? They they really have
2: cast a very wide net. There is a news story going around, literally front page of ESPN. It's like there's one thing that. John Schneider's been tasked with in a head coach. And I'm like, well, this should be good. And it's like, maintain the culture. And I'm like, great. (laughs) Literally, there's nothing so far that can can really be learned about what John Schneider is going to do with this position. Offense, defense, perspective, young, old. It's kind of just a bunch of dudes right now. So, which is good at the same time, because after he ends up making this decision, I think we're going to have a very good sense of, okay, John Schneider has heard all these perspectives. This is the one that he thinks is most aligned with winning football games. So, I still
1: don't know if we'll have a good perspective because it's the same thing I said about coaching hires and firings at the athletic department director level. And like, there are, it's actually exponentially more choices you get to make because there's, you know, 19 programs or whatever it is at UW. Like, <laughs> some of them can't even make the rundown. <laughs> <laughs> Many of them, sadly. But like, if he Those picks the boys Dan are on Quinn, the boat, but they
2: ain't on the rundown.
1: <laughs> they get they get a uh, they get a uh, <laughs> toast when when there are crew titles. I don't know that we're gonna have like weekly updates know <laughs> <should have> crew. What <laughs> if he hires Dan Quinn because he thought that Dan Quinn was like a really good dude when he was the Seahawks defensive coordinator? I don't know that necessarily we could draw that much from that even. But yes, from this list, we cannot draw anything. And look again they should be trying to interview as many people as they can so that they're exposed to people. Because, you know, some of these some of these coaches might not necessarily make sense as head coach of the Seahawks, but they might make sense as, you know, if it's Ajiro Averro becoming defensive coordinator if you hire in a, a first-time head coach who's an offensive coordinator. Like, that's the kind of scenario that I think makes a lot of sense. And guess what makes that easier? If you've just interviewed them to be your head coach.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. No, I, I think they're definitely going about this process seemingly the right way. And I'm fascinated to see what they say. I mean, I, I do think we'll get a sense of what John Schneider is looking for, but also their individual personalities as well. So, but I think he's interviewing enough people on both sides of the ball and both perspectives that I think he's going to, I think we'll get a sense of what that looks like. I mean, obviously I think all of the names that we look at and the ones that we're excited about are coming from the offensive side of the ball. And all of them, for the most part, you look at, they haven't even uh, submitted an interview for Dave Canales yet, right?
1: They have not requested, yes. Uh,
2: But you do kind of look at the coordinators who are left around the league, and a lot of them are looking pretty good right now. And I think you have to specifically look off coaching carousel batch for the season. And all of a sudden after seeing his names, I'm like, I actually think there are some very strong ones out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I said it about Bobby Sloak Like, I don't think I would even go to the interview. I'd just be like, submit a YouTube link to the game on Saturday and be like, enjoy this motherfuckers. That would be my interview. So, We'll see. Uh, obviously, the Seahawks actually can't. All these interviews at this point are virtual. They can't interview coaches in person until January 22nd. And that's. Uh, what is the
2: logic for that?
1: That they don't want to disadvantage coaches who go further in the playoffs because it's harder to interview them while they're preparing for games. And so the in person interviews can start January 22nd, but that's only with eliminated coaches or those who are not. Is that know, new? Under contract. That is, I believe, new, is it last year? Okay. So.
2: I mean, some of the coaches who, you know, both the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator of the Super Bowl losing team ended up with jobs. Of course, the offensive yeah. coordinator of the Super Bowl winning team didn't get a job.
1: And it's not on the Seahawks list of reported interviews, that being Eric Biennium. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, is the, has he been reported as interviewing for any jobs? I haven't yet?
2: seen his name at all.
1: Yeah. That's that's about par for the course.
2: I mean, that's I yes, that is par for the course where opportunities would have popped up. So you go back to this is why Kalen DeBoer had to take that Alabama job this year, though, because opportunities. Eric Bieniemy was passed over probably for other reasons, but opportunities don't necessarily pop up a year later. I mean, I asked you this earlier about Lincoln Riley, why he wasn't a name around Alabama, and it's like it was a couple of years ago, Lincoln Riley was the number one coach. That's interesting because I was looking
1: at my calendar. I don't know where I put it on the calendar, but uh, I guess it was after the Super Bowl. Maybe uh, did Ken Dorsey get a head coach interview? Uh, I have not yet seen. Who his argued name. for this? You did. I said he was going to. Yeah, after he got fired by the Bills, you were like, he's going to get interviewed for a head coaching job despite being fired as an offensive coordinator. Uh, even though Ken Dorsey did nothing wrong, he has not. Yeah, been interviewed.
2: And wait, who's their new coordinator? Uh, Joe Brady. Yeah, I haven't seen him be mentioned either.
1: No. Hmm. We'll see if they keep winning though. All right. Well, we will see what more news we have on the Seahawks coaching search this time next week, or perhaps at some point if we have an emergency pod. Look, we're well practiced at those. We we love doing them. (laughs) (laughs) That, That siren has been getting a real workout. Siren emoji. Uh. If you've listened to all of the emergency pods, my friend texted me. He asked me when when he was getting his socks a la the little Woody's Burger <laughs> Month for having <laughs> little to to emergency, every emergency pod. Pod. Just to Ross Tyler for that
2: one. Oh my god. We'll have to get those in the mail. It's also just a great reference. There's a talking taco time shirt if you own. <laughs> If you don't have a talking Taco Time shirt already, and you could prove somehow that you listen, or, and you could just tell us, <laughs> yeah, I think we'll believe it. But yeah, we'll trust that you listen to all emergency. Pods. I mean, look,
1: you've obviously listened to the end of this podcast because you're here. <laughs> yeah, if you
2: if you made it here, just let me know. On that send, note. Send, send me a private DM on on Discord with your address, and I will mail you. I don't know what sizes we
1: have left. Size small. <laughs> you are not a lot of. We have any size you want as long as it's small. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a medium or two, but I think so. On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks.
2: Talking taco time sure. I mean, I just like to get them out of my basement. All right. I feel like we have to do the like. We've done so many hats. Did I argue against a beanie last time? We'll talk about it later, but yes. Oh, I'm so stupid for arguing that. I, agree. I I think Beanie's the way to go, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. For the next one. It's just because I'm cold right now. I feel like we do the merch of the spring, and I'm like, I'll never be cold again.